Well, folks, I don't know if you've ever stopped to consider this, but it is kind of a strange thing that we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus, the light and life of the world. We celebrate this in the dead of winter. After all, even the early church wasn't sure when, what day Jesus was born, but they agreed to commemorate it on December 25th. But this is kind of a profound theological thought. Because we celebrate Christ coming as the light of the world during the darkest days of the year. We bask in the warmth of His love when it's coldest outside. And when nature seems to abandon us, when the leaves shrink away and the animals go into hiding, when life seems to be gone from us, this is when we worship Emmanuel our God with us. See, church, Advent is a reminder that God comes to us at our worst and our weariest, not our best and brightest. And in that spirit, for this cold and dark and even dreary season, we'll be here in the story of Ruth, one of five women exceptionally listed in the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew's Gospel. Now, as you know, Ruth is a small book, maybe two to four pages in most of your Bibles. And it's a story that's filled with just seemingly ordinary people. But in it, we see an extraordinary grace from God ripple through the long years. So for Advent, a season again of of darkness, of coldness, and of seeming lifelessness, before we get to the joy of Christmas, we'll be exploring this story of God's surprising love for hopeless outsiders that He makes a part of His saving plan for the rest of the world and for His coming kingdom. And although this is set hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus would arrive on the scene, we see that all the way through this story, God in His sovereign grace and infinite wisdom is not only saving Ruth, the Moabitess, and her extended family from their misery, but he's also preparing to save the world from sin and death. So let's just jump right into it this morning, looking at our first five verses. Now the beginning of Ruth, kind of almost to me, sounds like the beginning of a fairy tale. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. That's a great opening line, I think. The story's first chapter, however, is all but hopeful. You know, fairy tales usually have some kind of happy thing about them, but nothing in this chapter seems to be happy. In fact, as you just heard, this family faces a harrowing path forward. And you know what's even more surprising than that? As you'll look throughout the book of Ruth in these these next four Sundays we have together, God Himself is rarely mentioned in this story. Naomi does a few times, but what God is doing in this story is not abundantly clear. It might be easy for us to wonder alongside of Naomi, where is God in the midst of all these terrible things happening? Famine, death, barrenness. Where is God? It seems like He's nowhere to Naomi, at least. And maybe sometimes in our own lives it may seem that God is not close to us either. 
But the tragedies of the beginning of this story, and make no mistake, what we've heard about this morning is nothing but tragedy. And tragedy is worth grieving for that matter. Those tragedies and those deaths are by the end of our story transformed into new life and joy and birth. And behind all this seemingly random coincidence that we'll find in the book of Ruth, and it just so happened that Ruth went here, and it just so happened that Ruth met this person, and this just so happened that this person was related in this way. Behind all the random coincidences, although we don't hear the voice of God speak, we see the hand of a good and sovereign Lord working in such a way to bring wonderful promises to pass and a hopeless people. Not only for Naomi and Ruth, not even just for the nation of Israel, but for all the people of every age, tribe, language, and tongue. But back to our main story. In the days of the Judges, a time in Israel's history, if you've read the book of Judges that precedes Ruth in our Bibles, it was a time in history that was totally chaotic. Politically, morally, spiritually, and every way. It was the Wild West. We read this phrase all throughout the book of Judges, and it ends, the book ends this way, and there was no king in Israel. Therefore, there was no unity in Israel. There was no common ideal in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. And wouldn't you know it, that always led them to conflict and to sin and death. That's the state of the world in which the book of Ruth unfolds. Utter chaos. Political uh, uh, disruption. Famine sickness, hopelessness. Do these things seem familiar to you? And yet, in the middle of those terrible times, these people are also dealing with a a supply, a shortage uh, um, of supply, a shortage of food. They're facing a famine. You know, they're being talked about in the news all the time how there's going to be an imminent shipping crisis. We won't have the people or the the things to be able to get things, medicines and foods in and out of uh, the country and, and from one place to another. The, the, the fear of famine, even in our modern world, where we can walk into a grocery store and, and, and pick fruit that's not even in season and get things that have been packaged so gently and carefully for us for a few dollars and, and put it in our cart and, and, and walk on to the next thing. That's not a surety in our modern world anymore, like it once was. And so here we have this family from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, of course, literally means the house of bread. And yet they have to leave their home because there was no bread to be found in Bethlehem, nor in all of Israel. And then we meet this man, Elimelech, the husband and father, uh, the husband of Naomi and the father of two sons, Malon and Kilion. And they have to go all the way down to Moab to survive. Moab is a rival country that was considered evil and unworthy, not only by God himself throughout the Old Testament, but by Israel too. Moab being the the people, the descendants of, of Lot. And while they're trying to eke out a living in a hostile, 
pagan land, Elimelech has the nerve to up and die on his wife. So Naomi was left only with two breadwinners, her sons Malon, who marries a Moabite woman named Ruth, and Kilion, who marries a Moabite woman named Orpah. Now for another ten years, they try to survive, just barely getting by, subsistence farming only. But guess what? Those boys also have the nerve to take after their father and up and die themselves. Both Malon and Kilion live up to the tragic meanings of their name. Malon meaning sickness. Kilion meaning wasting. And they get sick and waste away, leaving Naomi and her mind utterly alone. Totally barren. Without a hope in this world. So here's Naomi. The only Israelite around. And a widow to boot. And she is utterly alone. Or so to her it seems. All three of her breadwinners are dead. And in those ancient days, if you were a woman alone, without a husband or sons, without somebody to look after you, this almost certainly meant a life of poverty, if not a life of death. Your savings, your pension, your 401k were gone. Maybe you had a house. Maybe you had a few clothes. Maybe you had a a, a part-time job that somebody would let you do, but hardly enough to live on. Naomi's daughters-in-law are are with her. Um, But unfortunately, they're not even from the same culture. And so they have a totally different way of living in the world, totally different set of values. Naomi seems, again, barren. So it's no wonder why Naomi, whose name means sweetness. Later in the chapter, we discover wants to change her name to Mara, which means bitterness. Her life to her seems over. She is without hope. Now there is some speculation by biblical scholars that because Ruth and Orpah were possibly married to Malon and Kilion for about ten years, that they didn't, if they didn't have children... It's not because they weren't trying. It may suggest that unfortunately uh, that these women were barren or perhaps their husbands um, were um, sterile. Somebody perhaps was infertile in this family. And so not only are they going through a, a, a physical famine, but even a familial famine. Now we don't know if that's the case. That's speculation. But what it does underscore is that they are in a tight spot. In some ways, we might say that Naomi and Ruth and Orpah were living in their own Advent period, their own time of waiting for something better to come, and yet not knowing if their grief or hopelessness or poverty might ever be done away with. That not knowing for sure if God would in any way show up to be present with them and for them. But let's look at our next set of verses here. Now by verse 6, Naomi hears a rumor that God in His mercy has taken pity on Israel and has shown up to feed His people. He's shown up in the midst of them to feed them. 
And how does she know the Lord is present? Well, the, the famine is over. The food has returned. So Naomi heads home towards the house of bread and towards the giver of all food. But she has no guarantee of what will happen along the way when she does finally arrive, if she does finally arrive. What a dangerous journey it is for her and uh, her two daughters-in-law. They can't get in their nice SUV and take 85 up to Israel, up to Bethlehem. No, they have to walk. Maybe they might have a pack mule. But the road could be beset with bandits and marauders. That's all the hope they have. And so, knowing that this is going to be a dangerous trip, and it, by an, I think really, an, maybe a little bit of an act of pity, self-pity on her part, I really do think in an act of mercy, Naomi tries to release these women from feeling any sort of uh, uh, um, bond to her. And in verses 8 and 9, she bids Ruth and Orpah, she says, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown to my dad and to me. And may the Lord grant each of you rest and peace and hope and a new husband. Now, Naomi clearly is a woman, a woman who understands the plight of women. Her future seems non-existent. And so she deals kindly with these women that may have a shot at a normal life if they return to their homes, to their cultures, to their people, to their gods. Maybe they can get married again. Maybe they can have children. But if they hang out with her, a widow, and go on this road back to Israel, who knows if they'd even make it alive. So she blesses them, asking the Lord, be kind and faithful to them as they had been kind and faithful to her. That they might have rest by having a husband and having children hope for a future. And these women come together and they weep because they're at a terrible crossroads. Always seem to lead to death, to uncertainty. But they try to be faithful to her, to their credit. And still she insists they go home because she can't have more sons. Even if she could get married that night and conceive, it would be years before these women could marry those boys. And Perhaps then, who knows if they could even have children. So she says in verse 12, there's no hope for them with her. In fact, she thinks it's maybe better to get away from her because the Lord seems to be against her. The Lord's hand, from Naomi's perspective, is against her. And in verse 14, they, they weep again because life is hard and their future seems hopeless. And so Orpah very understandably, by the way, returns to her home at Naomi's request. I think we're too hard on Orpah. Here's a woman that tries to stay with her mother-in-law. Really doesn't have any reason to, out of just sheer decency. But her mother-in-law says, no, I'm serious. Go home and have a shot at a normal life. Who wouldn't take her up on that? What Orpah does is very reasonable, I think. And in the end, I think she's even, you could even say she's Tearfully obedient to Naomi. Maybe she didn't want to go, but she wanted to honor her mother-in-law. So Orpah did only what was expected of her, but something unexpected happens next. Because Ruth clings to Naomi, we read. She shows not just commitment, 
but an otherworldly faith. A faith that's inexplicable. Because little does she know how she is already becoming an answer to Naomi's prayer of blessing. May the Lord bless you and through what is about to happen to Ruth, the Lord is blessing her. Ruth and Naomi then return to the house of bread, the little town of Bethlehem. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, the Lord gives them more provision than they'd ever dream of. Not only do they get their daily bread, but through their family, the eternal bread of life will be born into Bethlehem, the house of bread. But for a third and final time, Naomi insists to Ruth, go, follow your sister-in-law. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. Naomi wants to release Ruth from any obligation. She wants Ruth to go be free to her people and to her gods. And although Naomi is trying to be gracious to Ruth, I think we can all agree that this is bad advice she's giving her. But unfortunately, or rather fortunately for her, Naomi worships a God who is greater than any bad advice an Israelite may give to a Moabitess. And, she's, and this God is greater than any Moabite idol that Ruth could return to. Because despite her bad advice, the Lord answers her earlier prayer to bless Ruth. And look at this extraordinary thing that Ruth says to Naomi. Her confession in verse 16b, wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I won't go back to my own people. I won't go back to my own gods. Your people are now mine and your God is now mine. That is an absolutely kind of staggering faith from Ruth, a pagan Moabitess. The the Israelites in this story don't have a greater faith than a woman who's never even met the God of Israel. It's incredible how the Lord works His truth and mercy and goodness out through some very surprising and unexpected people. And for that very reason, I believe it was the Lord who was speaking through Ruth to respond like this. In fact, I even think that Ruth sounds a little bit like the Lord and the Old Testament. But what do I mean by that? What what does it mean that Ruth sounds like the Lord? Well, the consistent promise that God has made all throughout the Old Testament up until the story of Ruth is that He will be their God and Israel will be His people. See, she's almost quoting Him, having perhaps never even heard that Scripture. But think with me for a moment. If we go back to Genesis 17 at the beginning of Israel's history, when the Lord chose Abraham's family to become a great nation called Israel, the Lord says to Abraham in Genesis 17, He says, I will confirm My covenant that's between Me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. And it's a permanent covenant, permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land 
where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. You begin to hear that language. I'll be their God, and they'll be, that, they'll be my people, starting in Genesis 17. Hear that? The Lord's intention is to be the God of Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. But here's an even more surprising and shocking fact. As we get further into the life of Israel, we get a a, a vision of what God intended all along further revealed to us through His prophets and teachers. And so we read in Jeremiah in chapter 24 as as he's writing um, the words of the Lord not only to the Jewish people, not only to the Israelites, but also surprisingly to the Gentiles. And Jeremiah reports the word of the Lord in, the, the word of the Lord in chapter 24 when he says, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God because they will return to me with all their heart. This vision, though, again, is not just for the Israelites. Jeremiah has the Gentiles, the nations in view as well. People that will become a part of God's new covenant. A covenant wrought through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And finally, folks, if you want to know where this concludes, we'll just go ahead and spoil the end of the story for you. But if you go to Revelation chapter 21 at the very end of the Scriptures and look at verses 3 and 4, we see how the culmination of these prophecies to Abraham and Jeremiah and even through Ruth Ruth come to fruition. God's redemption of humanity through Jesus at the end of history and the birth of a new world. When we read this, God's dwelling is with humanity and He will live with them. They will be His peoples. Plural. They will be His peoples. And God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Do you see what's happening here, folks? From Genesis to Revelation, God's promises have remained the same. He will be our God and we will be His people. When Ruth tells Naomi that she will belong to Naomi's people and Naomi's God, even on the promise of death, she becomes a shining portrait of God's own faithful love towards this world and Jesus Christ. And verse 19, after a long and tumultuous journey, no doubt, Naomi and her foreign but faithful daughter-in-law return back to the house of bread, a.k.a. Bethlehem. And their presence stirs up a commotion in this little town. They're shocked that Naomi is back after all these years. And even more shocked to find she comes back without her husband, without her sons. And perhaps shocked most of all that the one person she has in tow is Ruth, a strange pagan from Moab of all places. The women began to murmur about all this. Is this Naomi? 
as in to say, what happened to her? Now, again, it's important to remember that Naomi's name means sweet or pleasant. But what they're really asking here, a little clever literary thing, they're asking, is this Naomi, the one of pleasantness and sweetness, coming to us dirty and destitute, family only to foreigners? What's so sweet about that? See, even the Israelites scoff at what God is about to do. But Naomi even agrees with their terrible assessment of her. She asks them, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me sweetness. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitterness, because her life is a bitter, rotten mess. Naomi even goes as far as to say that the Lord is actively against her. He's not just let her have a string of bad luck, but He opposes her. The Almighty opposes me. He's against me. And in this moment, in her, in her doubt and her disbelief, she sounds just like Job's friends, which thinks a hard life means the Lord couldn't possibly love her. Her life is bitter and empty and brought low with calamity because God hates her, is what she thinks. Now, I think Naomi is expressing frustrations that we often feel as Christians when life is hard. When we feel the weight of our fallen world around us, when we feel the bitter sting of death in our midst, it's easy to feel as if God has abandoned us. But as we wait for the coming of Christmas morning, and as we wait for the second coming, of our Lord Jesus. We cling to His promises that He will never leave us nor forsake us. Suffering doesn't mean that God isn't near. In fact, folks, Paul the Apostle shows us that it means quite the opposite. In our weakness and sorrow, we are reminded that we are united to Jesus who also emptied Himself so to be our strength and hope, our life and our future. Jesus became poor and lowly so that we might be uplifted to be restored with Him. And the last verse of our passage today, in verse 22, kind of returns now to the mode of a fairy tale. The beginning kind of sounded like, oh, this might be a good story. And then it takes a hard left turn into awful. But there's a hint of, of promise on the horizon. There's just a dash of hope. But this fairy tale is true. And so Naomi and Ruth have returned to the house of bread, scoffed at by their community, lucky to be alive in their estimation. And although Naomi feels desolate, feels empty of all hope, we read that the harvest is upon them. A time when reward comes to the people. But another greater harvest is on the horizon because little do they know that just around the bend is their Redeemer, Boaz. And when Naomi thought God was dead set against her, He was actually preparing her for a more full life than she could have ever imagined. Their story doesn't end with death, but new life. 
It doesn't end with failure and futility. It ends with hope of the harvest. And it doesn't end with famine. It ends with fullness and the house of bread. Let's pray. Father, help us to be a people of hope on this first Sunday of Advent. Help us to hope for the joy of Christmas and the glory of the second coming. And help us to see our own life in the story of Ruth and our new life and her descendant, our Lord and King and Savior, Jesus Christ, and whose name we now ask and pray all these things. Amen.